Section 4 of Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Curran, Hamlake, Minnesota, January 2010. Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2, Section 4, Chapters 14 through 18. Chapter 14. After fitting up my own lodgings in the castle and the workshop with all the conveniences for carrying on my business, and putting my household upon a most respectful footing, I began at once to construct three models exactly of the size which the silver statues were to be. There were Jupiter, Vulcan, and Mars. I molded them in clay, and set them well up on irons. Then I went to the king, who disturbed three hundred pounds weight of silver, if I remember rightly, for the commencement of the undertaking, while I was getting these things ready, we bought the little vase and oval basin to completion, which had been several months in hand. Then I had them, richly gilt, and they showed like the finest piece of plate which had been seen in France. Afterwards I took them to the cardinal, who thanked me greatly, and without requesting my attendance, carried and presented them to the king. He was delighted with the gift, and praised me as no artist was ever praised before. In return, he bestowed upon the cardinal an abbey worth seven thousand crowns a year, and expressed his intention of rewarding me too. The cardinal, however, prevented him, telling his majesty that he was going ahead too fast, since I had as yet produced nothing for him. The king, who was exceedingly generous, replied, For that very reason will I put heart and hope into him. The cardinal, ashamed at his own meaningness, said, Sire, I beg you to leave that to me. I will allow him a pension of at least three hundred crowns. When have taken possession of the abbey, he never gave me anything, and it would be tedious to relate all the knavish tricks of this prelate. I prefer to dwell on matters of greater moment. Chapter 15 When I returned to Paris, the great favor shown to me by the king made me a mark for all men's admiration. I received the silver, and began my statue of Jupiter. Many journeymen were now in my employ, and the work went onward briskly day and night, so that by the time I had finished the clay models of Jupiter, Vulcan, and Mars, and had begun to get the silver statue forward, my workshop made already a grand show. The king now came to Paris, and I went to pay him my respects. No sooner had his majesty set my eyes upon me than he called me cheerfully, and asked if I had something fine to exhibit at my lodging, for he would come to inspect it. I related all I had been doing, upon which he was seized with a strong desire to come. Accordingly, after this dinner, he set off with Madame de Tampes, the Cardinal of Lorraine, and some other of his greatest nobles, among whom were the King of Navarre, his cousin and the queen his sister the dauphin and dauphiness also attended him so that upon the day the very flower of the french court came to visit me i had been some time at home and was hard at work when the king arrived at the door of the castle and heard our hammers going he bade his company keep silence everybody in my house was busily employed so that the unexpected entrance of his majesty took me by surprise the first thing he saw on coming into the great hall was myself with a huge plate of silver in my hand, which I was beating for the body of my Jupiter. One of my men was finishing the head, 
another the legs, and it is easy to imagine what a dim we made between us. It happened that a little French lad was working at my side, who had just been guilty of something triffing blunder. I gave the lad a kick, and as my good luck would have it, caught him with my foot exactly in the fork between his legs, and sent him spinning several yards, so that he came stumbling up against the king precisely at the moment when his majesty arrived. The king was vastly amused, but I felt covered with confusion. He began to ask me that I was engaged upon, and told me to go on working. Then he said that he would much rather have me not employ my strength on manual labor, but take as many men as I wanted, and make them do the rough work. He should like me to keep myself in health, in order that he might enjoy my services through many years to come. I replied to his majesty that the moment I left off working, I shall fall ill, also that my art itself would suffer, and not attain the mark I aimed at for his majesty, thinking that I spoke thus only to brag, and not because it was the truth. He made the cardinal of Lorraine repeat what he had said, but I explained my reasons so fully and clearly that the cardinal perceived my drift. He then advised the king to let me labor as much or little as I liked. Chapter 16 Being very well satisfied with what he had seen, the king returned to his palace, after bestowing on me too many marks of favor to be here recorded. On the following day he sent for me at his dinner hour. The cardinal Farah was there at meat with him. When I arrived, the king had reached his second course. He began at once to speak to me, saying with a pleasant cheer, that having now so fine a basin and jug of my workmanship, he wanted an equally handsome salt cellar to match them, and begged me to make a design, and to lose no time about it. I replied, Your Majesty shall see a model of the sort even sooner that you have commanded, for while I was making the basin, I thought there ought to be a salt cellar to match it. Therefore I have already designed one, and if it is your pleasure, I will at once exhibit my conception. The king turned with a lively movement of surprise and pleasure to the lords in his company. They were the king of Mavere, the cardinal of Lorraine, and the cardinal of Ferreira, exclaiming as he did so, Upon my word, this is a man to be loved and cherished by every one who knows him. Then he told me that he would very gladly see my model. I set off and returned in a few minutes, for I had only to cross the river, that is, the scene. I carried with me the wax model which I had made in Rome at the Cardinal of Ferrero's request. When I appeared again before the king and uncovered my piece, he cried out in astonishment, This is a hundred times more divine a thing that I had ever dreamed of. What a miracle of a man! He ought never to stop working. Then he turned to me with a beaming countenance, and told me he greatly liked the piece, and wished me to execute it in gold. The Cardinal of Ferrera looked me in the face, and let me understand that he recognized the model as the same which I had made for him in Rome. I replied that I had already told him I should carry it out for one who was worthy of it. The Cardinal, remembering my words and nettled by the revenge he thought that I was taking on him, remarked to the king, Sire, this is an enormous undertaking. I am only afraid that we shall never see it finished. These able artists, who have great conceptions in their brain, are ready enough to put the same in execution, without duly considering when they are to be accomplished. I, therefore, if I gave commission for things of such magnitude, should like to know when I was likely to get them. The king replied that if a man was so scrupulous about the termination of a work, 
he would never begin anything at all. These words be uttered with a certain look, which implied that such enterprises were not for folk of little spirit. I began to say my say, princes who put heart and courage in their servants, as your majesty does by deed and word, render undertakings of the greatest magnitude quite easy. Now that God has sent me so magnificent a patron, I hope to perform for him a multitude of great and splendid masterpieces. I believe it, said the king, and rose from table. Then he called me into his chamber, and asked me how much gold was wanted for the salt cellar. A thousand crowns, I answered. He called his treasurer at once, who was the Viscount of Orbeck, and ordered him that very day to disperse me a thousand crowns of good weight in old gold. When I left his majesty, I went for the two notaries who had helped me in procuring silver for the Jupiter, and many other things. Crossing the scene, I then took a small hand-basket, which one of my cousins, a nun, had given me on my journey through Florence. It made for my good fortune that I took this basket, and not a bag. So then, thinking I could do the business by daylight, for it was still early, and not caring to interrupt my workmen, and being indisposed to take a servant with me, I set off alone. When I reached the house of the treasurer, I found that he had the money laid out before him, and was selecting the best pieces as the king has ordered. It seemed to me, however, that the thief of a treasurer was doing all he could to postpone the payment of the money, nor were the pieces counted out until three hours after nightfall. I, meanwhile, was not wanting in dispatch, for I sent word to several of my journeymen that they should come and attend me, since the matter was one of serious importance. When I found that they did not arrive, I asked the messenger if he had done my errand. The rascal of a groom whom I sent replied that he had done so, but that they answered that they could not come. He, however, would gladly carry the money for me. I answered that I meant to carry the money myself. But this time the contract was drawn up and signed. On the money being counted, I put it all into my little basket, and then thrust my arm through the two handles. Since I did this, and some difficulty, the gold was well shut in, and I carried it more conveniently than if the vehicle had been a bag. I was well armed with shirt and sleeves of mail, and having my sword and dagger at my side, made off along the street as quick as my two legs would carry me. Chapter 17 Just as I left the house, I observed some servants whispering among themselves, who also went off, at a round pace in another direction from the one I took. Walking with all haste, I passed the bridge of the exchange, and went up along a wall besides the river, which led to my lodging in the castle. I had come to the Augustines. Now this was a very perilous passage, and though it was only five hundred paces distant from my dwelling, yet the lodging in the castle being quite as far removed inside, no one could have heard my voice if I had shouted, when I saw four men with four swords in their hands advancing to attack me. My resolution was taken in an instant. I covered the basket with my cape, drew my sword, and seeing that they were pushing hotly forward, cried aloud, With soldiers there is only the cape and sword to gain. And these, before I give them up, I hope you'll get not much to your advantage. Then crossing my sword boldly with them, I more than once spread out my arms, in order that, if the ruffians were to put on by the servants, who had seen me, to take my money, they might be led to judge I was not carrying it. The encounter was soon over, for they retired step by step, 
carrying along themselves in their own language. This is a brave Italian, and certainly not the man we are after, or if he be the man, he cannot be carrying anything. I spoke Italian, and kept harrying them with thrush and slash so hotly that I narrowly missed killing one of the other. My skill in using the sword made them think I was a soldier, rather than a fellow of some other calling. They drew together and began to fall back, muttering all the while beneath their breath in their own tongue. I meanwhile continued always calling out, but not too loudly, that those who wanted my cape and blade would have to get them with some trouble. Then I quickened pace, while they still followed slowly at my heels. This augmented my fear, for I thought I might be falling into an ambuscade, which would have cut me off in front as well as rare. Accordingly, when I was at the distance of a hundred paces from my home, I ran with all my might, and shouted at the top of my voice, Two arms, two arms out with you, out with you, I am being murdered. In a moment, four of my young men came running with four pikes in their hands. They wanted to pursue the ruffians, who could still be seen, but I stopped them, calling back, so as to let the villains hear. Those cowards yonder, four against one man alone, had not pluck enough to capture a thousand golden crowns in metal, which have almost broken this arm of mine. Let us haste inside and put the money away. Then I will take my big two-handed sword and go with you whithersoever you like. We went inside to secure the gold, and my lads, while expressing the deep concern for the peril I had run, gently chided me and said, You risk yourself too much alone. The time will come when you will make us all bemoan your loss. A thousand words and exclamations were exchanged between us. My adversaries took to flight, and we all sat down and supped together with mirth and gladness, laughing over to those great blows which fortune strikes for good as well as evil, and which, what time they do not hit the mark, are just the same as though they had not happened. It is very true that one says to oneself, You will have had a lesson for the next time. But that is not the case for fortune always comes upon us in new ways, quite unforeseen by our imagination. Chapter 18 On the morning which followed these events, I made the first step in my work upon the great salt cellar, pressing this and my other pieces forward with incessant industry. My workplace at this time, who were pretty numerous, included both sculptors and goldsmiths. They belonged to several nations, Italian, French, and German, for I took the best I could find, and changed them, often retaining only those who knew their business well. These select craftsmen I worked to the bone with perpetual labor. They wanted to rival me, but I had a better constitution. Consequently, in their inability to bear up against such a continuous strain, they looked to eating and drinking copiously. Some of the Germans in particular, who were more skilled than their comrades, and wanted to march apace with me, sank under these excesses and perished. While I was at work upon the Jupiter, I noticed that I had plenty of silver to spare, so I took in hand, without consulting the king, to make a great two-handled vase, about one cubit and a half in height. I also conceived the notion of casting the large model of my Jupiter in bronze, having up to this date done nothing of the sort. I conferred with certain old men, experienced in that art of Paris, and described to them the methods and use which us in Italy they told me they had never gone that way about the business, but that if I gave them leave to act upon their own principles, they would bring the bronze out as clean and perfect as the clay. I chose to strike an agreement, throwing on them the responsibility, and promising several crowns above the price they bargained for. 
Thereupon they put work in progress, but I soon saw that they were going the wrong way about it, and began on my own account, ahead of Julius Caesar, bust and armor much larger than the life, which I modeled from a reducted copy of a splendid antique portrait I had brought with me from Rome. I also undertook another head of the same size, studied from a very handsome girl, whom I have kept for my own pleasures. I called this Fontainebleau, after the place selected by the king for his particular delight. We constructed an admirable little furnace for the casting of the bronze, got all things ready, and baked our molds, those French masters undertaking the Jupiter, while I looked after my two heads. Then I said, I do not think you will succeed with your Jupiter, because you have not provided sufficient vents beneath for the air to circulate. Therefore you are but losing your time and trouble. They replied that, if their work proved a failure, they would pay back the money I had given on account, and regroup me for current expenses, but they bade me give good heed to my own proceedings, for the fine heads I meant to cast in my Italian fashion would never succeed. At this dispute between us, there were present the treasurers and other gentlefolk, commissioned by the king to superintend my proceedings. Everything which passed by word or act was duly reported to his majesty. The two old men who had undertaken to cast my Jupiter postponed the experiment, saying they would like to arrange the moulds of my two heads. They argued that, according to my method, no success could be expected, and it was a pity to waste such fine models. When the king was informed of this, he sent word that they should give their minds to learning, and not try to teach their master. So then they put their now piece into the furnace with much laughter, while I, maintaining a firm carriage, showing neither mirth nor anger, though I felt it, placed my two heads, one on each side of the Jupiter. The metal came, all right, to melting, and we let it in with joy and gladness. It filled the mold of the Jupiter most admirably, and at the same time my two heads, this furnished them with matter for rejoicing, and me with satisfaction for I was not sorry to have predicted wrongly of their work, and they made as though they were delighted to have been mistaken about mine. Then, as the custom in France is, they asked to drink in high good spirits. I was very willing, and ordered a handsome collation for their entertainment. When this was over, they requested me to pay the money due to them, and the surplus I had promised. I replied, You have been laughing over what I fear may make you weep, on reflection, it seems to me that too much metal floated into you mold. Therefore I shall wait until tomorrow, before I disperse more money. The poor fellows swallowed my words and chewed the cut of them. Then they went home without further argument. At daybreak they began quite quietly to break into the pit of the furnace. They could not uncover their large mold until they had extracted my two heads. These were in excellent condition, and they placed them where they could be well seen. When they came to Jupiter, had dug but scarcely two cubits, they sent up such a yell. They had four workmen, that it woke me up. Fancying it was a shout of triumph, I set off running for my bedroom, was at the distance of more than five hundred paces. On reaching the spot, I found them looking like the guardians of Christ's spaltray in a picture, downcast and terrified, casting a hasty glance upon my two heads, and seeing they were all right. I tempered my annoyance with the pleasure that sight gave me. Then they began to make excuses, crying, Our bad luck, I restored it. 
Your luck has been most excellent, but what has been indeed bad is your deficiency of knowledge. Had I only seen you put the soul into your mould, I could have taught you with the one word how to cast the figure without fault. This would have brought me great honour and you much profit. I shall be able to make good my reputation, but you will now lose both your honour and your profit. Let then this lesson teach you another time to work, and not to poke fun at your masters. End of section 4 Recording by Chris Caron, Ham Lake, Minnesota, as of January 2010